Happy New Year, everyone. Let me have my New Year's welcome uh, to Rich's area. We're not quite there yet, but um, quite a lot of the world's population is. About a third, I've discovered, are already in 2018, um, mainly thanks to China being, being over that way. Um, we, we've still got a few hours to go, so it's just enough time to make some resolutions. Um, I wonder if you're that, that sort of person um, that makes resolutions, like you know, goals, ambitions for the year ahead. Uh, Luke has already given us a great one that we might think about. Uh, I think lots of people do. I, I would say that most people do that I've come across, even if they, you know, they don't share it with other people. Um, uh, mo most people have some kind of idea of what they want to achieve in this next year, um, and it's it's the perfect time for it, isn't it? New Year, it's the it's the it's the best time because it feels like almost like a, a blank slate, doesn't it? Um, you know, like we can make a new start. Um, may, maybe your goals are you know very simple. Maybe they're quite ambitious. Um, I don't know, but I think if you know if, if we think about it for a minute, we've probably all got um, aims for the next year, things that we want to do. You know, keep in better touch with a friend, or make progress with a project, um, or learn a new skill, do some more exercise. Um, those are all quite common ones, I think. Um, because as people, we don't really want to stand still, do we? We, we want to grow. We want to better ourselves. We want to achieve our goals. We want to increase the things that make us and our family happy, and we want to decrease the things that make life suck. We want our story to be on an upward trend. And setting goals can be a good and healthy thing to do. It can be a good way of doing that. But I think much more important than what we want to achieve is what God wants to achieve. Or, or more, more properly, what God wants to achieve in us and through us. Because for followers of Jesus, making progress in our Christian lives is not really optional, but it's vital to our spiritual well-being. If you've been here in the past few months, um, we've been looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian church, and the theme has been freedom and uh, the, the, the gospel of salvation by God's grace in Jesus Christ, received by faith in his finished work on the cross, is that it's not an excuse to live however we like, but actually it releases us to be the people that God wants us to be. It releases us from our bondage to sin so that we might produce fruit. We're not just saved for heaven. The gospel has implications on how we live in the here and now. In our lives, we're called to do good works. And while these good works are not the roots of a Christian salvation, they are the necessary fruit. What does this fruit look like? Well, it's, it's quite simple, really. We saw it um, in the first half of Galatians chapter 6. It's pleasing God, and it's doing good to other people. Or as Jesus puts it in that famous verse in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, that, that is a great vision for our lives, isn't it? To please God and to do good to others. But I don't know about you, that to me seems like a very, uh, very lofty, a very distant, a very kind of abstract um, vision. It's a great idea in theory, but putting it into practice, well, that's a different thing entirely. 
is like some of those New Year's resolutions that we talked about. Fantastic ambitions, but sometimes they can be so broad and so you know, far off that it's really difficult to put into practice. We don't really know where to start. And when we're struggling a little bit, you know, by you know, the end of January, or maybe the 1st of January, that kind of person, then you know, we're tempted to just give up. And we'll be like, we'll try again next year. So over the next couple of weeks, what I want to try and do is connect up those dots, the vision of fruitfulness laid out for us in Galatians and the kind of nitty gritty everyday reality of our lives. If we're, if we're Christians, we are saved from the penalty for sin, but its power is still at work in us. And the truth is that we're never going to just drift towards holiness, towards fruitfulness. The inclinations of our hearts are still towards selfishness, towards wickedness, towards loving myself and not loving God and others. Here's a quote from a pastor called Don Carson that I came across this week. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. So productivity and hard work are not the opposites of grace. It's what we do as a result of the grace that we've been shown, the grace that we've been given. Luke said it earlier, um, and I came across, across it this week as well, that it said, if we fail to plan, then we plan to fail. And I've found that to be true in my own personal life. If I say I'm going to do something, but I don't decide uh, when I'm going to do it, how, you know, all, all the, the details of it, then it just probably won't get done in the majority of cases. And I think that applies in, in every sphere, you know, in the home, in work, and it's never more true than in the Christian life. So if we desire to be, to be holy, to pray, to study God's word, to give money, to spend time with people. If we desire to be fruitful, then we must plan to be fruitful. And that's not to diminish God's sovereignty and the role of the Holy Spirit in transforming us into Christ's likeness. But we're not passive bystanders in that. We've got to work hard to, uh, to be productive in our Christian lives. Uh, but, but what I'm going to do is that I'm not, I'm not going to give you a productivity seminar. I'm not going to give you like, you know, 18 quick tips um, to make 2018 your most productive year yet. You know, you'll, you will find hundreds and hundreds of blog posts and YouTube videos doing exactly that. But if we, if we go straight to those practical steps, we're going to miss the big picture. So over the next two Sundays, we're going to explore this subject of productivity 
from a Christian perspective. Um, it's, it's a little bit different to our normal approach where we take a book of the Bible and we go through it in order week by week. Um, but I think it's good to kind of mix it up a bit from time to time and, and hopefully you'll find that. Um, but having said that, we're obviously not discarding the Bible and putting it to one side. God's word is our guide for all of life. And we should certainly expect it to give us guidance on how to do productivity. So I want to use uh, this passage that, that we've read uh, to help us lay down um, something of, of a biblical framework, if you like, for approaching productivity. And I want to look today at four uh, Christian distinctives. Uh, a distinctive definition, a distinctive foundation, a distinctive motivation, and a distinctive power. Um, you'll find them, those points written on your um, service program. Um, so if you, if you like to make notes, that might be a useful thing to follow along with. So that's today, and then next week um, we're going to think about some of the dangers of productivity, um, or, or some of the dangers of the, the ideas that can come around productivity, uh, some good and bad models, um, and I'll finish off with some more kind of practical guidelines. I don't want to be too um, prescriptive uh, about this because everyone is different and works in different ways. Um, and, and what works for me is not necessarily what is going to work for you. Um, but yeah, let's, let, let's kind of try and think about this subject in a, in a biblical way. So let's, uh, let's get into the Bible. Um, let's dive into that, the, the parable that we read earlier. This is one of Jesus' uh, many parables, which are stories that he told um, that have a, a kind of spiritual meaning beyond the, the plain meaning that we read in the text. It's not just like a, a nice story, but it, but it has a, a kind of meaning behind it. And this is the middle one of three parables that he tells to his disciples that are all about the kingdom of heaven. So when it says in verse 14, again, it will be like, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So let's, let's do a quick recap of the story. Um, so this man, um, He's a wealthy man and he's about to go on a long journey. And he decides that while he's away, he's going to invest some money in three of his servants. Uh, I say some money, um, this is a huge amount of money. Apparently one bag of gold was maybe between 20 and 40 kilos, um, which in today's money is could be around a million dollars, something like that. Um, if you've got an older version, you might see that it's called a talent, or if you look in the, the little footnote. Um, but yeah, bas basically a talent was a, a standard like measurement of gold, so it's kind of a bag of gold. So when this man gets back from his long journey, two of his servants have doubled their money um, and are commended for being diligent and faithful, but the other one returns his single talent, his, his bag of gold, and he's condemned by the master for being wicked and lazy. Sometimes uh, we find that Jesus' parables are difficult to understand, but I think this one is, is one of the clearest. The master is Jesus himself, and the journey that he undertakes is the time between him going back up to heaven and him returning um, in the future. And the servants are his disciples, not just those apostles who asked him the, the questions that led him to give these parables, uh, but all Christian believers, me and you. 
and the talents, the bags of gold, are the resources and abilities that God has given us. In fact, we know that that's the historical interpretation because um, we use that word talents now to kind of mean abilities, don't we? And that comes from the King James Version, uh, translating this Greek word talents. So the message of the passage is very simple, really. It's to be diligent with what God has given you. In other words, to be productive. So that's a, a very quick overview of the passage. Um, but yeah, we're going to get into some of the detail a bit more as we think about these four distinctives of Christian productivity. So first of all, a distinctive definition. Um, so how, how would you define productivity? Um, in business terms, productivity is the measure of how efficiently you convert inputs into outputs. We've um, got a bit of a diagram there that's going to become familiar. So how efficiently you convert inputs into outputs. Obviously, ideally, you want the outputs to be greater than the inputs. And the, the greater the output, given the same input, greater the productivity. Personal productivity is pro probably an idea that's um, uh, kind of become popular in the, in the last few years. Um, it, it's slightly different. Um, so we've got another, um, well, we'll have another diagram in a second, but here's a definition of personal productivity that I've found. And I think this, this sums up well the mindset between all those blog posts and YouTube videos that I mentioned earlier. People want to get stuff done more efficiently to be better faster, smarter, richer, or just to free up more time for things they enjoy. Personal productivity is ultimately about achieving goals. So the idea is that productivity is like this set of methods and tools um, by which you get stuff done to accomplish your personal goals, your personal ambitions. It's using me to become a better me. There's our second diagram. So instead of kind of business inputs and outputs, it's using me to become a better me. Now let me give you a definition of productivity that I think flows from this passage in Matthew. It's kind of uh, slightly cribbed from a guy called Tim Challies, um, who's an author and has written a book about productivity, which I highly recommend. It's called Do More Better. Um, and I've kind of adapted his definition a little bit. So here's, here's my definition. Productivity is effectively using the resources God has invested in me to serve him and do good to others. Pull out there, sorry. There we go. Productivity is effectively using the resources God has invested in me to serve him and do good to others. So the first part of this definition changes our thinking about the like inputs to the productivity process. And the second part of the definition changes our thinking about the outputs. So we're going to kind of modify this diagram as we go along. So read verses 14 and 15 with me if you've got your Bibles open. Verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 25. Um, if you've shut them, I'll give you a few seconds to open them again. It's on page 994 
in the Red Pew Bibles, Matthew 25. So verses 14 and 15 say, Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. So where, where does the gold come from with which the servants will produce good things? It doesn't come from themselves, does it? It comes from the master. It's not their own money, but it's being invested in them by someone else. They are simply stewards of this wealth. In, in my definition, I've used the word resources. And what I mean by that is our, our gifts, our abilities, our time, our energy, our enthusiasm, our economic wealth as well, all those things. Whatever we have, God has given to us in his kindness. But, but in reality, they're not ours. They're just on loan, really, from God. So let's change our diagram a little bit. sneak preview of the, the finished diagram. I'm sure you could tell where it was going there. Um, so, so that is a great place to start, I think, um, in how we think about productivity. And it leads us on to the second part of the definition, who is the, the primary person who is gaining wealth in the passage. It's the master, isn't it? But it's the servants who are being productive. So the servants are not being productive for their own sake, but they're being productive for the master's sake. So productivity in the biblical sense isn't about me achieving personal goals. It's not about making a better me. It's not about making me better, faster, smarter, richer. The purpose of productivity is to help us serve God. And serving God necessarily entails doing good to other people. In the very next parable, um, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that those who do good to other people are serving him. You can go away, go away and read that um, in your own time if you like. When we do good to others, we are serving Jesus. And to serve Jesus, we must do good to others. That's the final part of our, our little diagram there. There is our, our biblical definition of productivity. Productivity is effectively using the resources God has invested in me to serve him and to do good to others. That is our distinctive uh, biblical definition of productivity. Okay, secondly then, um, biblical productivity has a distinctive foundation. Just become clear in a minute. Uh, the foundations of a house are important. Without them, you could, you could still build a house, if you like, but the strongest of wind is going to come and blow it right down. So with productivity, we've got to start with the firm foundation of the gospel. Otherwise, all our efforts are going to be in vain. As we've seen in Galatians, the good news about Jesus 
it's not that we're saved because we do good. Instead, the salvation comes first. It says in Romans 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation comes when we have nothing in our hand to bring to God, to bridge the gap um, between us and him that's created by our sin. God saves us through Jesus purely by his grace, his undeserved kindness to us. We contribute nothing to that. And if we did, grace would not be grace. And therefore, if we think that we're saved because of our productivity, because of the good that we do, then we flip the gospel on its head and it's really not good news anymore. Productivity is not the cause of our right standing before God, but it's the result. It's not the root, but the fruit, which is what it says up there. It's, it's, it's like a tree. It's kind of why it's called fruitfulness. It's like a tree which begins to grow apples. The tree doesn't become an apple tree because it's started growing apples. The tree grows apples because by nature, it is an apple tree. Or to think about it in a, in a slightly different way, the apples don't give life to the tree, but they are the sign of life that is already within the tree. So yeah, that's, that's why we talk about fruitfulness, because it's, it's a helpful metaphor. So how, how do we see that in this passage, though? Because on first reading, it seems like what we've got to do to earn the master's approval is to work hard. And if we don't do that necessary work, if we're not productive, then we're going to incur the master's wrath. Verses 29 and 30 say, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we need to do a bit of work here um, to get to this idea. And I think the key is understanding the cause of the third servant's lack of productivity. So let's read verses 24 and 25 again. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where, where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The key word here is afraid. The man is acting purely out of fear. He believes that if he makes a mistake with this money, then he's going to be punished. He's scared that if he invests the money and loses it, you know, it's going to be bad for him. But ultimately, he's just mistaken about the character of the master. And out of fear, he goes and buries the money in the ground where he thinks you know, it's safe. It's not going to be stolen. It's not going to be lost, assuming that he's you know, made a note of where he put it. Apparently, there's, a, there's an ancient proverb uh, that goes something like this, the safest place for your money is in the ground. Now I have heard a story about a man who believed that and decided to bury all of his notes because he didn't, he didn't trust the bank. And six months later, when he needed some money, he tried to dig it up and discovered that worms had begun to eat his money. And uh, amazingly, the bank managed to salvage a lot of his, of his money. Apparently, if you've got a note that, you know, 
it's almost resembling a nerd that's ripped and uh, stuck back together and stuff, they will often accept it. So that's amazing that the bank saved him. Anyway, that's a <laughs> little, little sidetrack. Um, so one, one commentator had this to say about the third servant, which I thought was helpful. The fault of the third servant was that he did not recognize his master's intention and opted for safety instead of service. Hoping to avoid doing anything wrong, he finished up by not doing anything right. And in a similar vein, a 17th century English pastor named Richard Baxter is quoted as saying this, to do no harm is the praise of a stone, not a man. To do no harm is the praise of a stone, not a man. That is a challenge, isn't it? We, we, we could uh, go back to the tree analogy. Always helpful. The tree is not successful merely by surviving as a tree, merely by just living, but it's successful by producing fruit, isn't it? Living a fruitful and God-pleasing life is about so much more than trying hard not to sin. It's not less than that, but God has not put us on the earth to do no wrong, but to do much good. And the other two servants in this parable get that. They understand that the master is trusting them with his wealth, and they're totally liberated to go and put the money to work. They're not acting out of the fear of losing the master's favor, but they're acting in response to the knowledge that it is already unconditionally theirs. The third servant was, was much like a Pharisee, really. These characters that, that pop up um, all throughout the Gospels. Their religiosity was all about trying to define these kind of these exact rules and boundaries with the aim being not to sin so that they could gain favor with God. But friends, this is not the gospel. This is not the foundation for living a productive and fruitful life. The solid foundation is the knowledge that you are unconditionally loved by God and that his love for you cannot be increased by good works and not going to be decreased by bad works. This is the truth that liberates us to step out in faith, to take risks and to do good to others. Okay, thirdly, the biblical approach to productivity has a distinctive motivation. We've already seen the, the kind of secular uh, motivations. It, it, it's about making a better me, a faster, you know, stronger, more intelligent me, achieving my goals, making my life happier and easier. But for a Christian, the motivations are different. We've already talked about one of them just now, and I think that should be the main thing that gets us out of bed in the morning to go and do good in the world. But there are three other motivations that we can see in this parable. Um, and helpfully, they all begin with an R. So they should be easy to remember. So the first one is responsibility. We t we've already touched on this a little bit. Uh, the servants are stewards of the master's wealth. They have a responsibility to do something good with what they've been given. 
the first two servants understood this and they took their responsibility seriously. If you look at verses 20 and 22, uh, Master, you entrusted me. They understand that, that dynamic, that this is the Master's and they've got a responsibility to produce good things with what they've been given. And in the same way, we've got a responsibility to use the wealth, the talents, the resources that God has given to us to do good in the world. Secondly, readiness. The, the background, like the, the context of this parable is that Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God uh, and how one day it, w- it would come to fulfillment and do away with all of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And they asked him in chapter 24, verse 3, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What they really want to know is, how is the world going to end? And when is, when is it going to end? Like, when are you going to come back? And Jesus gives the answer that he doesn't know. And it's not that important anyway. Instead, he goes on to tell three parables that show them what's more important. Not when he'll return, but how they should live in the meantime. Uh, the first parable, um, again, go in, have a, have a read of that later, if you have time. Um, the first parable is all about being ready, being ready for the master's return. And that theme carries into this parable. The master will return one day. The servants knew that. If he was never going to return, maybe what the first two, two guys should have done, or maybe what they all should have done, is, is gone away and used that money to live the high life. And that exact thing happens in another parable that Jesus tells in Luke's Gospel. But given the fact of the master's return, they knew to be ready. And so in the same way, we must be found to be ready when Jesus comes back. It could happen later today. Or it could be thousands of years away. We just don't know. But we can make sure that we're ready by using the resources God has given us in his service. Thirdly, the third motivation for the Christian to live a productive life is reward. I don't know if that surprises you a little bit. I mean, we were just saying how salvation is guaranteed and that good works come out of that. And, and that, that's true. We've got, we've got to start there and we've got to keep coming back there again and again because we will forget it. But equally, the Bible does say that we're going to give an account of our works it says it right here in verse 19. The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And there will be a reward for those who have been faithful. Our life in eternity will be uh, influenced directly by uh, what we do on earth. There's three kind of parts to this reward mentioned in this chapter. And they're in both verses, uh, verses 21 and 23. And it's interesting to note that... Um, so 21 is the response to the first servant with five uh, talents who made another five. And verse 23 is the response to the second servant who made another two talents with the two that he was originally given. One makes more than the other, uh, but relative to what they've been given, it's, it's the same. And those two verses are absolutely identical. So that's just an interesting thing to think about.
So these rewards, there are three rewards. First is the reward of the pleasure of the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. I think it's clear that the master is absolutely delighted with those two servants. They receive his highest commendation. Isn't it great when someone that you uh, love and respect gives you praise for something that you've done? I mean, there's, there's always kind of satisfaction in a, in a job well done, but it's even better when the one that we've done the job for really appreciates it. So which of us who are in Christ don't long to please him and more to hear those words from him at the end of our lives? Well done, good and faithful servant. The second reward is the reward of additional responsibility. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. This is uh, additional responsibility that will be given in the new creation. When Jesus returns and makes all things new, and in my eternal life in my resurrection body begins, I'll, I'll be responsible for great things if I've done uh, if I've done good with what God has given me on earth. And third is the reward of abundant joy. Come and share your master's happiness. How awesome it'll be on that day when all of our efforts in God's service, however weak and feeble and however much of a failure we feel like, they'll be shown to have brought great joy to God, which will overflow to us. It's distinctive because it doesn't center on us. It's not all about me. Secular motivations for productivity are always going to focus on my happiness, my dreams, the people I'm responsible to, the personal rewards, but those things are all temporary. They can be take away, taken away in an instant, but when the focus of our attention is on God, it's on something that will not change with eternal reward. Okay, finally, and uh, we're just going to be brief with this. Uh, a biblical approach to productivity involves a distinctive power. So in the same way that the definition, the foundation, and the motivations are not found within ourselves but outside of us, so the power to do these things is found outside of us too. Power to be productive firstly comes from God's grace. Luke has been teaching us about that in Galatians. God's grace is not a one-time thing that saves us, but power which transforms our hearts and our lives to do God's will. We also read in Galatians, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He lives in us by his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one at work in us, transforming us day by day into Christ's likeness. God doesn't ask us to find the ability, the strength, the energy to do the things that he wants us to do from within. But he lovingly and graciously provides all that we need. So Christian productivity is different 
it's distinctive to the productivity we see and, and read about in the world. It's got a distinctive definition. Productivity is, is effectively using the resources God has invested in me to serve him and to do good to others. There's a distinctive foundation, the gospel of grace, which is not given as a result of being productive, but leads to a productive life. There's distinctive motivation, responsibility to use our resources well, readiness for Christ's return and reward in heaven for our work. And there's a distinctive power to do it. As we close, um, can I give you a little bit of homework? Just uh, consider your life. What, what are your talents? What are your bags of gold? What are the, the resources that God has, has given to you? The opportunities, the time, the energy, the enthusiasm. Maybe you could start a list. And as you add things to it, thank God for those things that he's given you. And pray that you will see them not as your own, but as God's that he has invested in you. And, and pray, that, um, pray that you would be motivated to use them to love and serve him this year. I think it's good to, to consider maybe setting a goal for 2018 as well. Just one. Just, just think of one thing. Um, it doesn't have to be original. It doesn't have to be complicated. Um, we've already seen uh, a good one that, that Luke has, has shown us. Maybe uh, have a goal to read through the Bible once this year. There are lots of others that we can think of as well. Um, so yeah, pick, pick one of those. And, and next week we'll build on this, this framework that we've established um, and start thinking about how we can effectively accomplish that goal um, and more generally how we can effectively use our lives to produce fruit for God, to serve God and to do good to others.